Welcome to It's the Pictures That Got Small. I'm Nate DeMeo. And I'm Karina Longworth. Each week, we reach out to a guest to suggest a movie, a big screen classic they just never found the time to see, and we all watch it on our small screens, now that we have nothing but time. This week, From Here to Eternity, we're going to talk about it, we're going to play a game, and try to raise some money to help keep independent theaters afloat. But first, we'll check in and talk about what we've been watching this week while we shelter in place. We were calling this our bunker viewing, but in honor of Ryan Johnson's star turn last week, Spin the Wheel! It is now our Spin the Wheel. We'll start here with our guest, Amy Nicholson, one of our favorite film critics, and the host of the podcasts Unspooled and Zoom. I can say the low-rent stuff, or I can say the classy stuff. I can say and admit that I watched All of Love is Blind, and I've been rationing out Tiger King. But I could say that on my higher end, and it is true, I've been marathoning Mary Pickford movies, so that's been my extreme. Because, you know, YouTube has so many great silent movies on there for free, um, because I guess they're mostly public domain, or I want to hope they're all public domain. And so I watched four Mary Pickford movies that I had um, never seen all the way through before. I had this vision. I remember hating Mary Pickford when I was in college because I was like a fucking punk rock kind of kid. Thinking like she was just this stuffy woman with all these curls because we watched Daddy Long Legs. And there's a scene that I saw where her dad punishes her and poor little rich girl for going out and getting into a mud fight with kids. And he makes her wear men's clothes as punishment. And when she looks in the mirror and realizes she has pockets and that pockets are the coolest thing on the planet... She just suddenly came alive to me in a way that I hadn't realized she was. She was Her whole jabbing at girls who just don't want to be feminine. I don't think I noticed that before because she looked so feminine to me. So it's been really fun going back and watching all those. What about you guys? I had my first moment the other day where I started watching a movie that otherwise I probably would have loved. But I was like, whoa, this is not the time to be watching this movie. <laughs> in the last episode of this uh, beloved uh, time-honored podcast... <laughs> Um, I was saying that I stumbled upon an Arthur Hiller uh, film festival because I watched, not knowing he directed both movies, The Out-of-Towners and then Love Story back-to-back. So this week, I wanted to keep going. Uh, I started to watch what is the next Arthur Hiller movie, which is a Patty Chayefsky movie that, that I'd never seen called The Hospital with George C. Scott. Have either of you guys seen this? I've never no. seen that. And I love George C. Scott and his little angry chin. From the first 15 minutes or so, it is totally a movie uh, to see. It's very funny, very Patty Chayefsky. It has a fantastic opening that is narrated by Patty Chayefsky. It feels a little bit uh, Wes Anderson in, in its approach, and it's really wonderful. But that said, it is a satire about an overburdened uh, New York City hospital <laughs> Where like budget cuts have made it impossible for them to keep people alive. And it was not the movie to watch now, but it is definitely a movie that hopefully someday can uh, come back into my life and not feel just kind of horrible and weird. And then the other thing that I just want to recommend is that the second Portrait of a Lady on Fire uh, started streaming. Oh, nice. Um, it totally became a thing I enjoy having on in the background because... A, it's, it, I find it wonderful, but also it really is about like isolating at home <laughs> in a great way. And I totally recommend that. Yeah, but at least they could do beach walks. Oh. Karina, what about you? Well, I definitely relate to there being movies that maybe I would feel differently about under different circumstances. Last night, we tried to watch Silence of the Lambs, which I hadn't seen since watching it on VHS with my dad in like 1992. And I... 
I'm, I'm just finding it really hard to stick with things that I don't emotionally connect to. Yeah. For the first maybe 40 minutes, I was like, oh, like I'm into this as a movie about how much harder it is to be in this world as a woman, to be like in this FBI training program and in this world of serial killers as a woman. And then I feel like the movie moves away from that and becomes ex- like just extremely literal as a, like sort of a crime hunting movie. And I just completely lost interest. And so I know I'm wrong. You know, I know Silence of the Lambs is a great movie, but I just stopped caring about it completely. Whereas like the the big sort of adventurous watch for me this week um, is the five-hour cut of Vim Vendor's Until the End of the World. Oh, how is that? So I'd never seen the shorter cut. Um, for people who don't know, uh, Vim Vendor's made this incredible, like, globe-trotting epic film in 1991, I think. I think it's the same year as Silence of the Lambs. He was sort of forced to produce a three-hour cut of it, which he called the Reader's Digest version. Um, and then it was a huge financial failure. And then, like I guess recently, there was a restoration of his original director's cut, which is almost five hours long. Um, you can get it on Blu-ray or it's streaming on the Criterion channel right now. I mean, I really, really connected to it really early on. Like, I just hooked into the vibe of it. But I was watching it with my husband, and, like, he did not. And so I was kind of on my own watching it all week. I watched the first, like, two and a half hours in one sitting, and then I've been kind of watching 45 minutes at a time by myself, and I finally finished it yesterday. It's not entirely defensible, <laughs> um, but I it really has this melancholy and sort of romance to it that, you know, it actually just made me feel better. It's just I, I can't necessarily recommend it because a five-hour movie that's sort of a noble, not quite failure is not for everyone but it was really for me this week do y'all mind if i squeeze in a couple new releases that came out this week because like you know as we're talking about older films my heart is also thinking like ah all of the people who got screwed over when their festival premieres got canceled or their wide releases this week got canceled i had to watch a bunch of them this week for the radio and there are a couple that i just really love and i want to mention them because they're coming out on vod or they're out they're out now and one of them is by Hannah Marks, really great, young, awesome actress and screenwriter. She's only 26 right now, and she's written some just brilliant, really youthful movies. She had one called After Everything that is about a young couple where they go on their first date and one of the people confesses that they just got diagnosed with cancer. And so they have this whirlwind romance because they think one of them might be dying and they want to be there for them. And like it's just very, 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 very passionate. But her new one is called Banana Split. It has her as a girl who's just graduating from high school and she breaks up with her boyfriend because they're going to go to different colleges. And then he has this passionate summer fling with a new girl who moved to town that she really wants to hate. But instead, they get drunk at a party together and they become best friends. But secretly, they keep it from the guy. So it's this love triangle where, like, the real weight is on this teen girl friendship. And they are such wonderful friends and so lovely together. And this movie, Banana Split, just has a lot of charm and a lot of life and I want people to see it. I'm kind of, I'm so sad for it that its release is getting scuttled by this. That was definitely the best new film I saw this week, but then I saw a really cool Jesse Eisenberg movie that was amazing for the first two thirds of it. It's Jesse Eisenberg and um, Imogene Poots, who I love a lot. It's called Vivarium. And it's about this British couple who takes a tour of um, this housing complex that they don't want to live. And it's this really strange kind of tour guide who's trying to make them buy a house 
and it's this row of houses on this in this neighborhood suburbs that are all exactly alike and creepy and green. And they take a tour inside the building and he just leaves them there and they can't get out because it's this surreal, <laughs> evil, hellish, magical, de- like demon place. And then they're forced to raise a child who is not really a child and it's creepy. It, it absolutely bungles the ending, but everything before it then is just super cool. It's a first time director, I think. And I was like, you are awesome. Thank you for letting me give those a shout out. Karina Longworth, can you tell us about the movie we just saw? Yes. From Here to Eternity from 1953. This movie was huge. It was nominated for 13 Oscars. Pretty much everyone in it was nominated, and Frank Sinatra and Donna Reed won the supporting awards. And the film also won Best Picture and Best Director for Fred Zinnemann. It was just an absolute behemoth of a movie. Its $12 million gross in 1953 would be equivalent to about $120 million today. And for reference, no Best Picture winner has grossed more than that since Argo. However, it's a lot less than the gross of another Ben Affleck film and one that might be a more relevant comparison. Pearl Harbor, which made $198 million in 2001, which would be equivalent to $290 million today. Yes, Pearl Harbor was that big of a hit. (laughs) Um, Some context for 1953. This was the year that Marilyn Monroe became a superstar, featuring in two of the biggest hits of the year, How to Marry a Millionaire and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. But the biggest movie of the year was The Robe, a pretty much forgotten epic that was sort of the avatar of its day in that it used an advanced technology to get people to come to the movie theaters who hadn't been going to movie theaters because of television. In the case of Avatar, it was 3D. And in the case of The Robe, it was the first film released in Cinemascope. So this was this period when the studios were really scrambling to figure out how to compete with TV. And I think you see the influence of that thirstiness in From Here to Eternity. This was the last movie Montgomery Clift shot before getting into a major car accident while leaving a dinner party at Elizabeth Taylor's house. And while he would survive that accident, his face needed to be stitched back together. And most people feel that he wasn't the same after that, either physically or psychically. He still had some good movies ahead of him, most notably Judgment at Nuremberg and The Misfits. But in a little over a decade, he'd be dead. But the person that this movie was most crucial to was Frank Sinatra, whose career was essentially over before From Here to Eternity came out. Hollywood had completely lost interest in him as an actor after On the Town. And as a singer, he had been reduced to performing in Vegas nightclubs, back when that was considered to be a literal last resort. Sinatra's Oscar win for From Here to Eternity not only revitalized his acting career to the point that he became a bankable name pretty much without Wayne until the end of the 60s, but his restored stardom helped to transform his Vegas residency into a must-see show which in turn put Vegas on the map. It's Sinatra, you know, his singer is totally fallow at that point. Like his hit making days are behind him. But then like two years later, he's literally back on top. He records in the, in the wee small hours of the morning, which is yeah. his classic album. And he is suddenly really swinging 
right into the 50s. And In the Wee Small Hours is also informed by another thing that was going on in his life right now, which was his breakup with Ava Gardner. She was in Africa shooting the film Magambo, which was another one of the biggest films of 1953. They got to this sort of breaking point of their very tumultuous marriage. And he was like, I'm going to go to Hawaii and, and make this war movie. And she was like, don't come back. And he went to Hawaii to shoot From Here to Eternity, and she aborted his child. And then, uh, you know, they didn't get back together. And then he started recording these sad songs. So, Amy, so you brought this movie to us. Tell me about what you thought you were going to get and why this felt like this is obviously a movie I, as a film person, need to see. Oh, man. Well, yeah, it's always been this big hole in my list of films that I haven't seen. And literally all I knew about it was that it was the movie with the big kiss on the beach, right? I mean, that's what this movie is famous for. You know, two people in the water, waves crashing over them as they make out in the sand. And so I I tend to be a person who doesn't read anything about a movie until I've seen it, which gets hard with old movies, but I had managed to somehow do that with From Here to Eternity. No idea what it was about. I figured it was about this, like, long-term couple and their romance, I thought it was just a straight romance. And so to sit down and put this movie on and realize in 30 seconds it's a it's a military film, I'm so happy that I had no idea what was happening. I knew it was a military base. In my head, this is a romance set you know, around Pearl Harbor. So frankly, I thought this movie was Pearl Harbor. <laughs> like, I thought this was going to be some sweeping epic, you know, of life during wartime and the romances that keep us alive you know, when the world would come for us. That, And I didn't quite realize a strange uh, military inside baseball, life on base movie this was. There's a lot of just like soldier dudes hanging out. <laughs> I didn't realize it was going to be quite so much of that. Um, certainly, um, it didn't feel to me like the like that, you know, kissing on the beach romance was um, the center of the film, the way it seems to be the center of the legacy of the film. Yeah, I guess I'll just be honest to say that, like, this was definitely a movie that I had trouble connecting to. Um, and it f- was just kind of a bore for me. I totally agree. I think my biggest takeaway is this movie that I thought was going to be some epic romance wasn't romantic. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, and I, I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing that, you know, sure. it's not a sweeping romance and that it's pretty cynical about these male female relationships. That might be the thing that I find the most interesting about it. But yeah, it's like certainly that Burt Lancaster beach scene is considered to be like one of the, you know, best kisses in movie history or whatever. <laughs> it doesn't really match with the overall vibe of the film. Well, no, but I will say that I out loud said Jesus in that scene when Burt Lancaster unbuttons his shirt and he has those trapezoid <laughs> muscles. His seeing his him shirtless, not really even in like a sexual way, but more in just an awe way that you can get your upper body to be that wide while your waist is so little. So I want to talk about Burt Lancaster because I I have to be honest that he's not a star that I considered very much. I just didn't think of him for a long time. And I really didn't think he was all that interesting until I saw this film a couple years ago called Trapeze, which is this Carol Reed film about like a circus in Paris. And Burt Lancaster was actually like a circus performer and an acrobat. And so it's partially his life story. A lot of the movie is about his body. (laughs) It's about like him, you know, kind of swinging through the air. Also in Technicolor, I think, Cinemascope, widescreen, um, basically wearing panties. I will watch this movie. Um, So that's... 
that's I mean, also, I just think it's a great movie, but that's certainly one of the attractions. And then, you know, recently Criterion has had a whole collection of his films streaming. And so I've watched more Burt Lancaster films, you know, sort of per capita during this uh, quarantine period than I had entirely previously in my life. And the th- I've, you know, I've just had some time to kind of contemplate him as a star. And I think that he is most interesting when he is doing something that's really difficult, like trapeze or like in this film I watched recently called The Rose Tattoo, where he's just playing like a goofy drunk and in sort of like a cringeworthy performance. But you can tell that he's having a lot more fun doing that than he is in something like From Here to Eternity, which just requires him to be kind of a square jawed hunk. There's that movie from 1968. I think it's called The Swimmer. Um, oh, yeah. The, is, swimmer is, the Swimmer is my jam. It was this sort of like aged up the graduate tale, but it was essentially sort of, you know, a tale of, of suburban ennui um, amongst older people. It's a body movie, too. You know, it really yeah. is, you know, of his sort of softening, uh, approaching middle aged friends. You know, here still is this, you know, magnificent specimen. Totally. And yet, I mean, was anybody just knocked sideways by how cynical this movie is? I mean, because I, I really did have that mental image that it was a big hearted romance. Like I figured from that kiss that this was a couple that maybe couldn't be together, you know, that they were kissing that way because something was going to pull them apart like the waves. And yet to have a film where you have, you know, the military officers like abusing their men in this movie coming out less than a decade after we win World War II, to have a movie with Donna Reed playing a prostitute, this movie really, I found it so audacious. She wasn't Donna Reed yet. Well, she wasn't the Donna Reed of the sitcoms, but she was definitely the Donna Reed who was the gigantic sweetheart of It's a Wonderful Life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Donna Reed has this, like, perfect little... I mean, they call her the princess the princess in the movie, but when you first see her, she has that little princess face. And to try to reconcile that that character is a prostitute was incredibly hard for me, even if I could erase all of my memories of the Donna Reed show. No, it's interesting that, that she gets to do this movie and then she gets to go on to be Donna Reed. Yeah. I don't know, guys. I feel cynical about its cynicism. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It just, I mean, you know, obviously it would have hit me differently in 1953, but now it's like the the against typecasting of her and Deborah Carr and Frank Sinatra to some extent. Like, I guess it was more novel in 1953, but now it's just like, it feels like this is, you know, what actors want to do, um, even if not to win an Oscar, then to, you know, just sort of prove themselves. But maybe they want to do it because of this film, because it got Donna Reed an Oscar. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm not sure it's a good thing. This felt like a movie that was not for us. Like this felt like a movie that was so specifically of its time and for its time that I, in some ways I find it really challenging to connect with on nearly you know every level. Like I you know, enjoy watching Montgomery Cliff. I'm a big fan of his performance in A Place in the Sun. And this is a variation on that theme, but it's instead of the uh, body curled in, brooding young man. This is the the straight backed, brooding young man. I you know enjoy his performance. I enjoy a, a, a handful of the performances in it, and a couple of the sequences. Like for instance, I found um, even though uh, the Pearl Harbor sequences are this strange mix of real footage and then a couple of really janky you know effect shots of toy boats, you know, with sparklers. <laughs> I found that the aerial assault on the base itself gripping when those uh, flyovers would happen and they would be gunning the guys down. Yeah, I think that's the best scene in the movie. Often when I watch World War II movies that are done in the 50s and late 40s, I keep thinking about 
the fact that so many of these actors were in the war themselves, you know, I mean, Ernest Borgnine was full on in the war. Jack Warden, who has a bit part in this, he shattered his leg in a parachuting training accident the week before D-Day. Like he was supposed to drop into D-Day. Frank Snatcher's famously 4F and Montgomery Cliff is 4F. And then Burt Lancaster uh, was essentially on USO duty uh, doing acrobatics and things like that. But so many of the people making this movie have direct relationships and probably traumatic relationships with firing guns and having guns fired at them. Um, I find the whole thing very uh, difficult to connect with, but yet fascinating. I mean, I really dug it. I thought this movie had this like daffy passion that it just clicked for me right away. I mean, this movie opens with people arguing about bugling and people are like, <laughs> you left that military because you couldn't stand to bugle. And I have never heard the word bugle so many times <laughs> in my life. And to get invested in bugling drama. I thought that that was like, they're basically saying like, you're gay, right? I couldn't tell. Maybe. I mean, to me, it felt like this man had this inner artistic drive that military life had suppressed. But I suppose uh-huh. that can be expressed that too. But I do think there was a lot of gay stuff taken out. Out of, out of the original book. I mean, from what I was reading about it after the fact, like that the uh, Frank Sinatra character was selling his body uh, to the other men oh. for extra cash. Yeah, that didn't make it into the movie. Yeah, I took the whole thing of Montgomery Cliff like not wanting to box as being like, it's like sort of subsumed, you know, homosexual panic. Maybe I'm reading into it. Maybe I was just looking for things to be more interesting than I found them to be. (laughs) I mean, it is such a daffy combination that you have Montgomery Cliff, you know, tiny little skinny, hairy-armed Montgomery Cliff, who happens to be A, the Army's best bugler, and B, the Army's best boxer. (laughs) Like, he's just this bizarre little creation that I I found so funny. There was so much in it. Like, when he plays taps for Maggio, and the notion that his taps is so soulful that it brings the bass to a halt, that you have all of these men connecting with this emotional experience that the military doesn't allow them to have, and they step to the window, you know, look up from their desk. I bet you that's proof. For that moment, they connect as human beings to the sorrow as played by this lonely bugler was wild. I thought that was super beautiful, honestly. And I love I love the sequence when Montgomery Cliff is in the bar and he grabs the bugle away from the man who he thinks is doing a pitiful bugling job. And he plays that bugle solo. I mean, it, that character of the guy who is the lesser bugler in this film, it, it made the scene when the Japanese invade for Pearl Harbor and he grabs his bugle and they're like, he's playing the cavalry charge. It, it, it was almost like, what a lesser bugler. They should have had a better bugler there. And I felt bad that that bugler, even in his moment of major, this is my moment to shine and play this bugle, he was kind of getting made fun of within the context of he sucks. I love the little moment where uh, Montgomery Clift takes out his mouthpiece from his bugle and then the other guy is just standing there looking at his bugle and putting in his old mouthpiece and thinking to himself i just don't have it i'm not the bugler that that man was i mean how fun is it to say bugle and that bugle solo scene was anybody when he's like bugle soloing in the bar i had so many moments in this film where i was thinking this was definitely studied when they made top gun excuse me miss hey 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 don't worry, I'll take care of this. A man halting the bar to do this performance that everybody yeah. stops and, and is impressed by. That felt so much like Tom Cruise singing You've Lost That Loving Feeling. You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. In the military, like, what can one do to distinguish themselves? What could the military possibly allow in, in terms of creative expression? And Montgomery Cliff, damn it, he's going to find it. And it's with that little bugle. Boy's got a bugle. 
I was really struck too by how much in this film really rested on different ideas about male jealousy. Because you have these two couples, you know, you have Montgomery Cliff and Donna Reed and you have Burr Lancaster and Deborah Kerr. And the men just can't relax. Like their their jealousy that their women have, that they're dating women who are not at all like the Hollywood virgin star type that have been with a lot of men. You know, that Deborah Kerr comes into this relationship with so much of a reputation from all the other men she's romanced on the other bases before she's got stationed in Hawaii with her husband and Donna Reed, her literal job being entertaining men at a bar. And these guys just can't ever let it go. And as soon as they're in a fight in any of these scenes, they immediately go to how many men have you been with? And the anger that they brought to these relationships. And I felt like the film had a very, had a fairly fair point of view towards sticking up for the women a little bit, or at least showing that the men aren't correct for always just going back on the you're a whore insult. In this whole thing, like everyone's sort of motivations were so muddied. The idea that you have this guy who doesn't want a box and, and there's, a, there's a specific backstory reason that will be revealed that he doesn't want a box. And if only he boxed, he, you know, he could get along. If only he boxed, he could make his career there in the military work a little bit better. And then meanwhile, Maggio, uh, Frank Sinatra is in the same sort of boat that if only he can keep his trap shut, if only he can, you know, follow the rules, he too can kind of get along and make his life better. And then there you have Burt Lancaster, ever this good soldier, pushing at his own sort of boundaries. But ultimately, he too, if only he would become an officer, then things might be able to change, etc. All those things were laid out very clearly, but I never actually understood what the consequences of any of them were supposed to be. Like, I never understood uh, what this movie was saying um, about anyone's position. You know, when Donna Reed is looking at Montgomery Cliff, wondering why he has to be such the soldier and that sort of thing, I too was wondering the same exact thing, which, which I think was one of the reasons why I just could not get into this movie. Huh. I loved it so much. I mean, to me, it just felt like a military movie that was, you know, layered onto basically like a prison yeah. movie, you know, to have char- like this, this institutionalization and these men being broken by the men in charge. And I have a character literally named Warden. <laughs> and it had that, it just had like kind of a teenage angry energy to it that I, I really clicked with. I mean, to have... Donna Reed give this big speech about what she wants out of life. And her big dream is that she's going to get back to the States. She's going to have all this money for being a prostitute. And she's going to join a country club and take up golf. In another year, I'll have enough money saved. And I'm going to go back to my hometown in Oregon. And I'm going to build a house for my mother and myself. And join the country club and take up golf. And I'll meet the proper man with a proper position. It's just that line, like, I'll be happy because when you're proper, you're safe. It had me thinking, you know, a friend of mine wrote a piece this week about how going through this quarantine time and going through the Trump administration has made him understand the 50s in a way he didn't before. That if you're from a generation like these men who you lived through depression, you fought in World War II, of course, when things calm down, you just wanted a calm house. You'd had so much trauma in your life when you were younger. It made him understand why why Donna Reed becomes Donna Reed. You know, you've lived through all this. You want something more peaceful. You just want to hide out from the world. And so I felt like this film was a really kind of interesting point in that whole emotional country arc of our of our nation. What interests me, though, especially about the films of Hollywood in the 1950s are the what happens when you do settle down and you're like, everything's going to be calm and, and prosperous now. But 
like you still have war eating <laughs> inside you and um, you're dealing with PTSD and peacetime facade is a facade and, and human beings are still monsters. So, you know, which is why, like, if people, you know, want to see what I think is a great Frank Sinatra performance in a great film, I would recommend Some Came Running, which is about all of that. And it has him as as a, a guy who kind of comes to a small town after the war and and is dealing with sexuality and creativity and what it means to be a man and Dean Martin's in it and Shirley MacLaine and it's in Technicolor. I always come back to that notion of like really wondering what the audiences of the 50s were seeing when they watched these World War II movies. Like if you think about a movie like White Christmas in the sort of, gee, I wish I was back in the army, what becomes of a general? You have these men who are aging and men who are looking back on their military service time. Um, so often the movies are promoting th- you know, the things that you missed, whether the risk or the romance or the travel or shore leave or whatever it was. And this at least gives a more complicated view of military life than most. But still, it ultimately just feels like a movie that just is so much of its time that it left me particularly cold. Wow. I mean, I'm happy to stick up and love it Good. because the, to, to me, it felt like a precursor of all of these things to come of like Catch-22 and of MASH surviving the John Wayne era of World War II films and, and then finally having a film that you found more cathartic about what your experience was like. Yeah. to still, I mean, to have a movie where the man loves the military so much and the military literally kills him. I know. I found it stunning. Especially in the time place. Yeah. You know, often I feel like when you have this book, especially really popular book like this was so much of what you have to do is fan service. We just have to make sure that this stuff gets on the screen. And this movie in particular has another kind of fan service moment, which is they have to depict the most traumatic and dynamic of all sort of historic incidents of the previous decade. And they have to show you the bombing and attack on Pearl Harbor. And they have to put these guys in it. And that attack feels so tacked on. You have this movie that has been so interior, but it isn't about, for instance, the ways that you know people make plans and people fall in love and then war comes in and it disrupts those plans and it interrupts those lives. Ultimately, this the war just kind of comes in to interrupt the movie. <laughs> Even at the end, when the military does in fact kill this man who loves the military so much, after having this weird set piece that felt so perfunctory, um, it really wasn't landing. It, that particular death didn't feel particularly earned. Yeah, I mean, the Pearl Harbor stuff, it reminded me of, I think, the kind of teetering, tiny attempts we've done in our generation to make a film about 9-11. Yeah. Because they, like, showed a calendar, and I was like, oh, my God. Oh, okay, we're like, this is December 1941, because, again, I hadn't read anything about it. And then the morning of... They kept showing you clocks and clocks and clocks. And I thought, right, because everybody at this time knew exactly when that happened and they were just ready. The way I think there was that ridiculous um, Robert Pattinson movie about 9-11. And, you know, now I think when we have a 9-11 movie, it it sort of often plays out, I think, a little bit that same way. Like we see a clock and we're like, oh, right, the planes are about to hit because that timestamp is really tattooed on our souls. Yeah, exactly. And so I loved kind of seeing that retrofitted for 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 a different generation, for the earlier generation that like knew about all of the timestamps first, about right when the moment is that your country's going to change forever. Can we talk about other things that are sort of uh, stamped on our souls a little bit? Why do we think that this is the kiss? 
you know, it's not a particularly romantic movie. It's a, it's a movie that's very cynical about even that relationship. But beyond that, that scene comes in like the first nine minutes of the movie or something like that. Uh, after these two people have barely sort of interacted and their attraction seems to only be um, because they're both really attractive and their connection seems to only be because they have explained through an information dump uh, uh, who each other is at that particular moment and what they might want from another person. So what was it about this particular kiss, do you think? Well, it was really um, groundbreaking in terms of its frank sexuality for the time. You know, there just there weren't scenes um, in other movies of people that close to being naked rolling around on top of each other. But that explains why it was a big deal at the time, but why to this day is it... If there was a... Let's present the art of the movies to the aliens in a three-minute montage set to music, that sequence would probably be in there. I think it's because it, you know, it was groundbreaking and it like kind of remained on this list of like the best and most important sex or kissing scenes for so long that it's now it's just kind of transcended that the same way that like images of the little tramp transcend the actual movies and the actual storylines. Right. It's just been on lists of greatest kisses for so many years that it just keeps staying on the list. I think that's part of it. But I also think like that it is the most chaste way of expressing all the other really, you know, twisted sexuality in this film that was even more shocking, I think. And so it's like the safest way of kind of touchstoning that. But I also wonder if we just have, as moviegoers, this visceral response to images of people coming out of the sea. Because when you were talking about, you know, this three-minute montage where they pretty much, yeah, if it's like greatest hits of movies, they'll put that in. And I bet a bunch of them will put in Ursula Andress coming out of the water, Right. In in um, James Bond. And maybe there's just something about that where like it's like so Aphrodite, beautiful people, water, ne- nearly naked, wet. We're just drawn to it like a dog looking at a picture of dog food. Like, yeah, that's my jam, you know? Right. Like Nev Campbell mm-hmm. and Wild Things. Petition to replace from here to eternity with Wild Things. <laughs> Did they look cold to you? I mean... That I just I I get really cold in the ocean water and I know Hawaii is warmer. I've never been to Hawaii. No, but I, it's so not warmer. It's not warmer because that looked miserable, man. That's the thing that's always shocking about Hawaii is that you expect it to be Caribbean temperature. But no, I think that those guys are cold and sandy and chafing. OK, gang, was this a good movie to watch right now? <laughs> I yeah it didn't it wasn't the right movie for me right now and, and maybe I would have felt differently at another time but it just it didn't work for me right now yeah I agree I mean I am glad that I saw it in the same way that it's always nice to get one's film history to tick off those boxes but that said I'm not sure that this is a great movie to watch at any time the movie that I would suggest um and I mean it's a post-world war II it is my favorite thing that I've watched about World War II in a long time is The Best Years of Our Lives. I've lately become a big staunch advocate for The Best Years of Our Lives, which is, you know, does a lot of the same things. It really does a lot of the same questioning about one's military experience and, and the same questions about manhood and all that stuff, but does them a lot more elegantly and also does a better job dealing with the stories of the women in these men's lives too, I think. Yeah, I would second that. I like this movie, but I can also agree that uh, Best Years of Our Lives is terrific. And if people haven't seen it, they absolutely have to. That movie is just beautiful. Now's the time we're going to play a game. This time, I'm going to be the game master. And it's a party game that I am calling Two Minute Remake. I'm going to give you two ladies two minutes to come up with 
a new version of this movie. Maybe it will perfect its flaws. Uh, maybe it will uh, round out some of its characterizations. Maybe it'll be just more fun. Are you guys ready? Okay. Sure. Two-minute remake. Let's go. So I would say that I would want it to be about the Deborah Carr and uh-huh. uh, and Donna Reed characters. And, um, you know, basically just, like, tell this whole story from their perspective. Would you want it to still be in the 40s or would you want to update it? I mean, is there is there a version of this movie that could exist I don't in know. the Persian Gulf? Yeah, like, where would you get the kiss if this was in Afghanistan? Like, some beautiful giant rolling oh, hills. Well, maybe you make it about... <laughs> Maybe you make it about Muslims, and so the kiss is forbidden still. <laughs> yeah, or maybe you make it about the women are in the military, and they're dalliancing and, with men who live um, who live outside the base. Or the women are in the military, and they're dalliancing with each other. That is probably closer to the spirit of the book than it's even po- this movie is. It's portrait of I mean, a lady on fire from here to eternity. <laughs> okay, but who do we want in it, though? I mean, Dakota Johnson is, I think Dakota Johnson could do a Montgomery Cliff, although she'd do it maybe a little funnier, which is fine. Maybe she should be Frank Sinatra and Kristen Stewart (gasps) should be Montgomery Cliff. Yes, I am absolutely sold on this because I could very much see Dakota Johnson rolling some olive. Um, There should still be like a hot dude, though, wearing shorts. Hemsworth? Mm, Maybe Chris Pine. I could maybe do a Pine. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, he's a better, he's a better actor. He's a better actor. I just... Well, it would be directed by Ben Affleck. I feel like this does still need to be Oscar bait. No. Here. Does it have to be? Why? No. <laughs> oh, I want Sienna Miller in here because any dream movie I make has to have Sienna Miller in there somewhere. So I want Sienna Miller to be, she can be, she can be the captain. She can be the corrupt captain. I'm okay with that. I could All see right. her being like very tough and, and, and trying to get her, her base in gear and be also being incredibly shallow and superficial and ruining it for everybody. Sounds great. Your two minutes is up. So to recap, we have a Gulf War set from here to eternity with Sienna Miller as the female captain. The main love story is between, is it Kristen Stewart and... Dakota Johnson. And Dakota Johnson. With Chris Pine playing the Donna Reed character. Is that right? I can tell uh, you. Sure. Yeah. Sounds good. Or maybe the Deborah Carr character. I don't know. Oh, yeah. He... <laughs> the Deborah Carr character. <laughs> He's just wearing a bathing suit. That's all we know. Amy, what theater do you want to highlight as they try to limp through this trying time? Vidiots has been spending the last few years. If people ever got to go to the original Vidiots, it has the most amazing video library. Their VHS collection is just wild. Stuff that they own on VHS that nobody else even has. And they have been over the last couple of years, you know, trying to like raise money, marshal their forces to launch a East Side theater that they have purchased or rented, I suppose is more accurate. And they've been planning to reopen as a screening room, video rental place, wine bar. They've been trying to make this happen. I'm a little bit worried that, you know, current circumstances are making it harder for them to raise money. The the East Side needs this theater to exist and we need their library out there. Um, So Vidiots is a thousand percent my choice. I'm going to be so excited when they open. I really want them to still open on time. At the end of every episode, we're going to turn to you out there to ask you to pitch in what you can to help support the community of independent exhibitors and help make sure those theaters and film series are there waiting for us when we're all able to go out to the movies again. We're encouraging you to contribute to the Art House America fundraiser. Now, this is a campaign organized by the Criterion Collection, Janus Films, and Art House Convergence, a nonprofit association dedicated to sustainability in community-based, mission-driven media presentation. 
There'll be a link in the show notes and on our website, smallpictureshow.com. If you want to drop us a line, email us at smallpictureshow at gmail.com. You can follow Nate on Twitter at The Memory Palace and subscribe to The Memory Palace while you're at it. And you can follow Karina at Karina Longworth and check out her wonderful podcast, You Must Remember This. Now let's find out what movie we're going to be watching next week by checking in with our guest, Megan Amram, a writer on The Good Place and The Simpsons and Parks and Recreation and Silicon Valley and on and on and on. Hey, Nate and Karina, Megan Amram here. And you know what? I was just going over the AFI 100 movies list and I realized I've never seen The Grapes of Wrath. So I was wondering, do you guys want to watch it? Uh, I guess you can't answer me because this is a podcast and we're not actually talking. So I guess just text or email. Cool. So go watch The Grapes of Wrath and join me and Nate and Megan next week. Thanks for listening. Talk to you folks again.